We are in Ezekiel 45. You want to open your Bible there? When Israel first entered the promised land, there was a lot of drama when Joshua got around to distributing portions of land to the various tribes. Uh, he did it by casting lots. This practice of casting lots is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament and seven times in the New Testament. In spite of the many references to casting lots in the Old Testament, nothing is known about the actual lots themselves. They could have been sticks of various lengths, flat stones like coins, some kind of dice, but their exact nature is unknown to us. The closest modern practice to casting lots would be flipping a coin. The practice of casting lots occurs most often in connection with the division of the land under Joshua in uh, chapters 14 through 21 of his book. None of the biblical illustrations of casting lots had to do with games of chance or anything like that. Every time it was used, the Israelites depended on the Lord 100% to reveal to them His will. It was an impartial way to find God's will when choices had to occur. While this was commonly done in the Old Testament times and during the early part of the New Testament, it's not any longer the way we determine God's will. People during that period of time didn't have the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, or a completed Bible. The one instance of casting lots in the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus was by the eleven apostles when they chose a replacement for Judas. And while some criticized them, saying that they you know, went out ahead uh, of God's will and they shouldn't have done that because Paul was really the twelfth apostle, uh, I, I don't really see any problem in what they did. Uh, to me, Matthias was the twelfth uh, because after they chose him, then he's called, they're collectively called the twelfth. Uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, they were just doing what they did naturally as uh, Jews in that time, uh, following the Lord's leading. And what we see is that in the future millennial kingdom, Jesus will again distribute the land by lot, only without so much drama. And that distribution begins here in chapter 45. So let's take a look at verse 1. Uh, Moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance... Uh, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. Now, in the division of the land, Israel is to present to the Lord a portion of the land as a sort of sacred district. Uh, it's going to be about eight miles by six and a half miles, uh, eight miles long and six and a half miles wide. The Lord's the creator of the universe. He has vast territories to his name. Why does he need a small plot of land on the millennial earth? Well, he doesn't need it so much, I think, as Israel needs to give it to him. It's like when you go somewhere and you bring back something for someone. Uh, it's thoughtful. It's a gesture of love. It's not that they need it. Uh, you know, Or it's like, you know, you parents and... And grandparents, it, you know, when, when your children and grandchildren bring you something, uh, you know, something they made in school, their hand impression or things like that, you don't need those things. You want those things because they're precious to you, because they're gifts uh, that you treasure uh, for the rest of your life. And so even now, giving to God, it's a thoughtful gesture that reflects your love. And that's why... Uh, well, another reason why, one reason why is we don't feel that it's biblical, but it's one reason why we resist trying to 
put a burden on people and say, you must give a certain percentage to God uh, because God requires this of you. No, that's not the New Testament teaching. God doesn't require anything of you but to love Him. Uh, And you will give uh, according to your love for Him uh, as a gesture. He doesn't need anything. God is not needy. Uh, Certainly His work you know, has needs and things like that, we could say. But, but in terms of your giving to God, that is just something that you ought to want to do. And if you don't want to do that, if you're not compelled to do that, uh, then people can make you do that. They can guilt you into doing it. They can force you into doing it. Uh, but it, it's not really from the right motive. And so, uh, you know, God doesn't need anything, uh, but we need to be on the giving end so that uh, we are expressing our love to God. Verse 2, of this there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods with 50 cubits around it for an open space. So this is the district you shall measure, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide. In it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. You shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 long adjacent to the district of the holy section. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. Now within this land area will be the temple complex Ezekiel has just described in chapters 40 through 43. This rectangle of land will be divided into two equal portions, each about 8.3 miles long and about 3.3 miles wide. The first portion, in which will be located the sanctuary, will be allotted to the priests for their houses as well as a holy place for the sanctuary. And the second portion will be allotted to the Levites who serve in the temple as their possession for towns to live in. Remember, all priests are Levites. They're from the... They descend from Levi, uh, but not all Levites are priests. And in the millennium, the only priests will be descendants of Zadok uh, to fulfill a promise that God made during the days of David and Solomon. Now, in Old Testament times, priests and Levites would be scattered throughout Israel. There were lots and lots of priests and Levites, and they served on a rotation just like if if you serve here at Calvary Chapel as an usher or in the nursery or Sunday school or wherever, you're on a rotation. You're not really, for the most part, most people who serve here, they're not here every Sunday uh, they, in terms of their service. You're on a rotation. Same thing with the priests and the Levites. They had certain rotations. And when your rotation came up, you went down and you served your time in the temple uh, there. Uh, but the rest of the time, you would be scattered throughout Uh, all of Israel. And that was a good plan uh, because it allowed the priests and the Levites to be available to people away from the temple to minister to them when they weren't serving. And so they could teach the people, they could answer their Bible questions, they could have radio programs, you know, whatever it is that they did in those days to uh, instruct the people. In the future kingdom, we're told in Habakkuk, and this is a quote, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so it would seem that there will be less of a need for the priests and the Levites to be out in the world uh, sharing Christ because uh, there will be lots and lots of 
the knowledge of the Lord throughout the world. And so they're going to be able to live closer to where they work, basically, uh, whether they're on duty or not, and just kind of hang out around the temple. Now, I got to thinking about this, and I, you know, I was thinking about the Lord, how he stopped to minister uh, to those who were the most lowly. Uh, you know, one story that comes to mind is, is as he was, you know, headed to a, a ministry and pushing through the crowd and everybody was crushing him, sort of. And then the woman with the issue of blood, with the flow of blood that couldn't be cured by doctors, she came and she thought, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And, and uh, Jesus is going along and, and he could feel power going out from him. The, and he stopped and he said, who touched me? And his disciples, of course, in typical pre-Holy Spirit disciple fashion, they say, everybody touched you, you're crazy, you know, I mean, you know, you think they would just be quiet, you know, just don't say anything when you're around Jesus, that would have been my strategy, I would hope, you know, probably not, but uh, you just, just, you know, every time they said something, he, he was like, what's with you guys, you know, somebody touched me. And, and he stopped, even though he was on his way to an important ministry, uh, you know, that, and, and, and he stopped and he ministered to that dear saint. And so many of the episodes in Jesus' life that are the most precious to us are him stopping and stooping to deal with the lowest uh, in society or people who, uh, you know, other people had passed over. And so, uh, you know, we always want to be available to that and we, we never want to blow people off or or you know, think that what they're asking is insignificant or anything like that. At the same time, though, as I was thinking about this, the, it is true that there, there are weightier matters for people to deal with sometimes. And the way I think this works out is that we ought to all serve one another, do the things that God has called each of us to do, so that no one has to do what I'm supposed to do. So if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing for the Lord, serving the Lord in the church, in the community at large, and if you and everyone else is doing it, then we're kind of free to do the things that the Lord would have us to do and to minister uh, in that way, uh, to stop and pause or to do this or to do that. Uh, it's when a, a member of the body decides that uh, for whatever reason they're they're going to quit serving or they're going to you know, take a sabbatical or they're just going to not show up or whatever it might be, what we might call in our modern vernacular flake out, uh, you know, then somebody else has to pick up that slack. Uh, and that's fine. That's, the, you know, I mean, we're servants and we should be happy to do that. I mean, there's no job too big, no job too small kind of a thing. But it's just an encouragement to just do what you're supposed to do. Be who you're supposed to be. Pick up your own slack and then it sets someone else free. And that's a good way of looking at servant. I know when I was an assistant pastor down at Calvary San Bernardino, I always thought part, a big part of my job was to make my pastor's job easier so that he could be free to teach the Word of God and, and minister to people and stuff, you know. And, and I always felt like a failure when I, I failed in that. Uh, it, it, and, uh, uh, of course, I was, you know, it was all in the Lord and all that and stuff. But uh, it, it's interesting. Just set people free to do what they're supposed to do uh, and uh, by doing what you are supposed to be doing. Verse 7, the prince shall have a section on one side and the other of the holy district and the city's property, and bordering on the holy district and the city's property, standing westward on the west side and eastward on the east side. The length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. 
The land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Now, we talked at length in our last study together in Ezekiel, showing how we believe the prince is King David in his resurrected body, serving as a co-regent with Jesus. And uh, the biggest reason we believe that is because there's a bunch of scriptures where David is promised that he will be ruling and reigning with Jesus uh, in the last days. And I I don't see any reason uh, that that's not going to occur. Uh, By the way, this pairing of David and Jesus always makes for an interesting apologetic argument. In Matthew 22, 41 through 45, we read the following. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, he's the son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? And then in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read this. This is Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Only if Jesus were the eternal God come in human flesh, could he be both the root or the ancestor and the offspring, the descendant of David. In other words, he, he would have had to exist before David which he did eternally as God, but he also had to be descended from David, which he did in coming as a human being from the line of David. Only if Jesus were the eternal God come in human flesh could David call his son Lord. And so it's just a very, it's kind of an interesting apologetic, it's an interesting argument. Jesus kind of always asking the Pharisees questions. They were always trying to catch him in things. And he says, well, let me ask you a biblical question. You guys are, you, you know the Bible. And they did. They knew their Bible. So he asked them, he says, you know, whose son is, is the Christ? And they said, it's the son, of, he's the son of David. Every Jew, every Jew knew that. And he goes, well, then how is it that he's also David's Lord? Uh, and it's, it's a mind bender. It's one of those. And, and it's because Jesus, your Savior, is eternal God come in human flesh. Uh, so really beautiful Apollo. Whenever I see David and Jesus together, I don't know why, but I think of those verses and, and that argument. Now at the mention of David and his future righteous reign, the prophet is given a word to speak to his contemporaries and to those who would follow, who would be leaders of Israel until the time that Israel was scattered. And so that's uh, given to us beginning in verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, <clears throat> Enough, O princes of Israel, Remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness. Stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. You shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, and an honest bath. The ephah and the bath, which are weights and measures, uh, will be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of an omer, and the ephah one-tenth of an omer. Their measure shall be according to the omer. The shekel shall be twenty geraz, twenty shekels, twenty-five shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your mine. And so the point of all this, <clears throat> I get lost in some of the uh, terminology, but uh, he's exhorting those who are in authority in Israel and who would be in authority after the captivity. He's exhorting them to, uh, to have a righteous rule, 
to, to treat people honestly and fairly. Ezekiel's audience, you remember, is in exile. They're being held captive in Babylon. Uh, the city of Jerusalem had just fallen. The temple had been destroyed. This was the third and final siege of King Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> and they would be in captivity for the next 70 years. Uh, and then after that, there's going to be a lot of history from the uh, return from Babylon up until they are dispossessed again and scattered by the Roman Empire uh, in 70 A.D. And so the Jewish leaders throughout that period of their history are here being exhorted, be fair, carry out the Lord's will with righteousness. In other words, look ahead to the future kingdom, see the way that the Lord is going to rule, how David is going to rule, and let that be your example. Don't rip people off. Don't uh, overtax them. Don't treat them unjustly. Don't uh, prefer the rich man over the poor man. You know, those kinds of things. And so uh, it's just a, a good statement here on just uh, doing what is right. We're not exiles or captives, but we are pilgrims and strangers who await the resurrection and the rapture of the church. We might have a lot more living to do before Jesus calls us home. I mean, at the same time that we believe that the rapture of the church is imminent, it could occur at any moment, we also understand that it, it could occur 10 years from now. And so it doesn't bother me. It could happen right now or it could happen... 10 minutes from now or 10 years from now, but it's, it's always imminent. So we could have a lot of living to do before Jesus calls us home. And so let's live as we ought to live in the last days. Here's how the Apostle Peter described it in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And so Peter had been talking about uh, the coming of the Lord and the coming destruction, and he said... Uh, you know, it's imminent, but we don't know when it's going to happen, and so let's live uh, as if we really believe that. You know, uh, it's interesting, there's a lot of, uh, this is off the subject a little bit, but there's a lot of theologies out there, a lot of, you know, belief systems in terms of, even within Christianity, about the end times. And there's a lot of people, it's become more popular, why this is a popular position, I don't know, but it's becoming more popular for Christians to believe that we're definitely going to go through the Great Tribulation. Uh, and yet, uh, the only people I respect who believe that, who say they believe that, are people who've sold everything and are building bomb shelters in the hills. Uh, because, you know, if you really, if you, for you to say, for somebody to say, yeah, I think, you know, uh, the tribulation could start tomorrow and we're all going to go through it. Well, are you ready for that? I mean, there's a sense in which you can't really be ready uh, you know, uh, but are you planning for it at all? Uh, I mean, you need to make more preparations than you did for Y2K. Uh, you know, and in Y2K, you know, at least people who believed that Y2K was going to be a disaster, they prepared for it. They really did. They thought, wow, I'm going to get up and my computer clock is going to be off. I won't be able to play solitaire. 
And so I'd better have a bomb shelter, you know, just in case my neighbor gets so angry that solitaire is off his computer that we go to blows, you know, and stuff. But seriously, people took Y2K uh, to heart and they, they stored water. Personally, I stored up toilet paper because I thought, man, that's, that's what you're really going to need during a Y2K emergency. People, I'm going to be bartering on this. My wife thought I was crazy, but I was going to be bartering in toilet paper. What do you got to offer? I got toilet paper. Or I'll give anything for that. Bullets, you know, beef, bullets, you tell me. But uh, anyway, so, you know, but there was some concern and people planned for it. I, I know some Bible teachers even said maybe you should move out of the city and, and move into a more rural area and prepare for that. And, so, and I, you know what? As much as I didn't believe anything was going to happen at Y2K, and of course I was right as usual, but... Uh, <laughs> As as uh, <laughs> I'll explain it to you afterwards. I don't. <laughs> that is so classic. Anyway, at least I respected the people who who did something about it. And so, whenever somebody, if somebody that you know, uh, if somebody you know says, "Yeah, I believe we're going through the great tribulation," say. Take me to your bomb shelter right now. I want to see. And they'll go, what are you talking about? Well, what preparations have you made? None. You've you got to be kidding me. You know, where's, you, you better have some guns and some bullets and lots of, you know, you better have a lot of everything because you're not going to be able to buy or sell anything. You better not be in a city. In fact, you're in the, you're in the wrong area completely. There's some caves someplace that you need to find, you know. So, um, and if somebody wants to do that, I still disagree with them. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, but I respect them. And a lot of times, just in a general theory uh, kind of a way, when people are arguing theology, sometimes I like to think, well, where does your belief take you? What is the end result of your belief? You know, We do this a lot of times with, with different uh, thoughts about salvation, for example, and certain people who have this idea that, only certain people can be saved. They say, okay, what is that? Where does that lead you? Where, where it leads you to is that God decided in eternity past that most people will never be saved, have no hope of being saved, and that he is going to condemn them to hell without any free will or choice or idea or anything like that. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that that's what the Bible teaches? Oh, well, I guess so. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And you don't need to believe that. And so think about the logical end of what you're thinking about because that's where you're going to end up. Uh, and, and it's very important. Now, if the Bible teaches something and you're sure, yeah, that's what you have to say. When people don't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to die. They're going to go to hell. There's, there's no way around that. There are those today who <clears throat> are kind of reinventing the theory of annihilation. Uh, or it's called annihilationism, that if people don't receive Christ, they're annihilated. They, they cease to exist. It's as if they never existed. But, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so we teach what the Bible teaches, but in some of these areas where, you know, people have added things or they have their own ideas, what's the logical conclusion of what you believe? And is that really something that the Bible teaches? So when Jesus says, whosoever will can be saved... And then you're over here saying, no, that's not true. Jesus was mistaken. He doesn't know as much as I do. Because I know only a handful of people can be saved. And so he, he really meant something else. I don't know. I'm with Jesus. Uh, it's always good to be on Jesus' side, right? If you have, a if you have to choose sides, that's a good one. Uh, now, it, back in these scriptures in Peter, 
Towards God, we are to be diligent to maintain the peace He's made with us. Towards ourselves, as it were, we're to be without spot and blameless. We're to be walking with the Lord and, and working on our walk. Towards others, especially non-believers, we ought to consider that God is long-suffering with them, that He's not willing any should perish, but that all would come to Him and be saved. I think sometimes I mean, it's kind of comical, but we need to look at people that we're praying for and working with and say, you know, you knucklehead, you could be the last person that gets saved. You're keeping me from heaven. I need, you need to get saved today. Why? Because I want to go to heaven. And, if, and you might be. Somebody's going, right? Somebody's going to be the last person. I wonder if there's some special, like, you know, immunity idol or something you wear, you know, once... Hey, see that guy? That's the last guy that got saved in the church age, you know. I knew it. But, uh, you know, I thought that guy would never get saved. But, you know, somebody... And so we need to look at people and think, you know, God is long-suffering. Why is there suffering in the world? Because God is suffering long with us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, it might interest you to see in the next set of verses, beginning with verse 13 that one thing will remain just as certain as it is today in the millennium. There will be taxes to pay. Uh, Verse 13, This is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah from an omer of wheat and one-sixth of an ephah from an omer of barley. The ordinance concerning oil, the bath of oil, is one-tenth of a bath from a core. A core is an omer or ten baths, for ten baths are an omer. And one lamb shall be given from a flock of two hundred, and uh, from the rich pastors of Israel, there, uh, these shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, to make atonement for them, says the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings, to make atonement for the house of Israel. Now, the prescribed portion is to be proportionate to each individual's wealth or lack of it. They're each to give a sixtieth of their wheat and barley, one percent of their olive oil, and one sheep from every two hundred of their flock. Now, this has nothing to do with what I said earlier about giving freely to the Lord. This is a tax that will be required of everybody for use by the prince As the people's representative, he will collect their gifts and use them to maintain the temple sacrifices, including the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the drink offerings at the festivals, the new moons, and the Sabbaths. And so, don't get these confused. There's giving to God in the millennium. There's, There's free will giving. And then there is the tax, because you remember, Israel is a theocracy. It's a government as well as a... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I want to say religion, but in the in the proper sense. Uh, and so the, God says, I have to, we have to maintain the temple uh, and and have the proper sacrifices and all. And so everybody's going to pay the temple tax and contribute towards that. Uh, and then on the other, and separate from that, uh, there is giving to the Lord. Verse 18. Thus says the Lord God. In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gatepost of the gate of the inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. Thus you shall make atonement for the temple. Perfect conditions cannot affect the fact that human beings are born 
dead in trespasses and sins. The sacrifice of animals in a millennium will drive home the point that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Verse 21, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you'll observe Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And on that day, the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. On the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah for each bull and one ephah for each ram, together with a hin of oil for each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. Now, the annual feast of Passover and unleavened bread will last seven days, during which the people will eat bread made without yeast. The prince will provide the sacrifices for that period. Uh, And we've mentioned this before, but the fact that the prince also sacrifices for himself lets us know that this is not Jesus Christ. There's... If you're going through Ezekiel on your own sometime and you're reading a commentary, there are commentators who believe that the prince is another title for Jesus, uh, but Jesus would not be sacrificing for himself. He has no sin, obviously, uh, to atone for. The third feast will begin in the seventh month on the 15th day. This is the feast or the festival of tabernacles. This is also a seven-day celebration, the last feast that we know of in Israel's calendar. And so in the millennium, it seems like there'll be Passover and unleavened bread combined together because they follow each other and then tabernacles. Um, uh, There's no mention of the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, or the Day of Atonement being observed in the millennium. Now, some commentators, again, they feel that the mention of the first and the last feast also includes all the other feasts. And that's possible. I'm not... What do I know? Uh, But I think Ezekiel could have just as easily mentioned all the feasts. And and that's, that's my position. Now, one reason might be that those three feasts are unnecessary in the future. For one thing, we know that in the book of Acts, it says, the Holy Spirit says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And so when the Holy Spirit is given to the church in the first century on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit says that's it. That's the end of Pentecost, as it were. Uh, This is the fulfillment. This is what we've been waiting for, the gift of God, the Holy Spirit given to these people, the church. And so there's no continuing feast of Pentecost in the millennium. The feast of trumpets will be fulfilled in the resurrection and rapture of the church when we hear what? The trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel saying whatever it says and we go up to the, be with the Lord. And so that's a fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. And of course, Jesus has already provided a once for all atonement for sin. Uh, and so we don't need that annual day of atonement uh, that the Jews used to celebrate. The feast that Ezekiel does mention, they do speak of Israel's unique relationship to God. Passover and unleavened bread point Israel back to the death of Jesus Christ. Of course, these are the, this is the feast that really inaugurated the nation of Israel when they were taken out of Egypt uh, and they celebrated Passover that very first time. Tabernacles speaks symbolically of their new position in the kingdom. 
Uh, they, they would go out and, and live in these booths or these tabernacles to indicate that one day their king would come and they would all be uh, encamped around him. Uh, and so uh, there's a tra- you know, it seems like the feasts that they retain in, in the book of Ezekiel here are those that still would pertain to Israel and the feasts that uh, are omitted are, have been fulfilled or are now unnecessary. Uh, and again, uh, just subtle and not so subtle differences between what you see in the Old Testament law and temple and what we see in the future temple to remind us that this is a real temple that will really exist with real sacrifices and real feasts, that it's all literal, not symbolic. Now, thinking about all this, I, I, uh, I think some of you are aware of this, but there's a trend among evangelicals to return to some aspects of Judaism, to find our Jewish roots. Um, it sounds innocent enough. It seems a little bit exciting. You know, it's, to me, when you first hear it, you think, well, it's, it's like having a Passover Seder at your church. You know, you have Jews for Jesus come in and show you what went on at the Passover Seder or something like that. Uh, listen to this excerpt from the New York Times. In a San Antonio chapel last August, after reciting their wedding vows and exchanging their rings, Sally and Mark Austin prepared to receive communion for the first time as husband and wife. Just before they did, their minister asked them to sign a document. It was a, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, ketubah. Is that, anybody know Jewish here? Ketubah? Ketubah? I could, well, Hebrew. I'm sorry. I didn't go to, I'm not college, ed, well, I am college educated. But anyway, <laughs> my dad, he could always get away with that, but I can't. I was educated in college back before it was accredited. But anyway, ketubah. Anyway, it's a traditional Jewish marriage contract. Uh, And so doing, the Austins, the article goes on, are part of a growing phenomena of non-Jews incorporating the ketubah, a document with millennia-old origins and a rich artistic history into their weddings. Mrs. Austin, in fact, first learned about it from her older sister, also an evangelical Christian, who had been married five years earlier, not only with a ketubah, but with the Judaic wedding canopy, the huppah. Embracing this Jewish tradition just brings a richness that we miss out on sometimes as Christians when we don't know the history, said Mrs. Austin. Jesus was Jewish. We appreciate his culture, where he came from. I like what she says there, and and by that I mean I don't like what she says there. She says... uh, there's a Jewish tradition that we miss out on because we're only Christians. We don't have any tradition. We, we need a tradition. Anyway. In an opinion piece based on this trend, a British journalist stated, quote, Evangelicals have become increasingly admiring of the sacramental richness of Judaism. Recently, a small Calvary chapel shut its doors because the pastor embraced this new trend now he observes the Sabbath and other things that are typically Jewish. And at least he had the integrity to say, I really am not an evangelical Christian anymore in the truest sense, and this is what I want to do. Now, I'm with James and the Jerusalem Council when it comes to issues like this. In the first century, there was a big argument, as you can imagine, because all of the Christians were Jews. Uh, you know, Jesus was a Jew. That was a real revelation to me when I got saved, you know. (laughs) I grew up in an Archie Bunker home, you know, and stuff. And so 
Uh, you know, the fact that Jesus was Jewish and may not have had blonde hair was a mind bender for me. But I got over it. Uh, and uh, all the first disciples were Jews. And, and, uh, and, and so these guys were saying, hey, Gentiles, non-Jews, they can't be saved unless they also do some Jewish things. They need to be at least circumcised, uh, you know, and, and there's some rites and rituals and feasts that they need. There's some things they need to do. And they would dog uh, Paul the Apostle. He would go and people would get saved and they would come in and say, you're not really saved. You're almost saved. You're close. Have you been circumcised? No, are you kidding? Uh, you know, I'm a Gentile. <laughs> it's, I'm not eight days old, you know. Forget you. And they said, no, no, you, 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 as soon as you get circumcised, then you're going to be truly saved. You're going to be sore, but you're going to be saved. And, and so this is what was happening. And so they decided, Paul the Apostle capitulated and he said, okay, if you guys want to bring this to Jerusalem and bring it to a church council, that's fine with me, but I don't really care what you think as I know the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he, he said, okay, let's see how this shakes out with Peter and the boys down in Jerusalem. So they go and they have this big church council, which encourages me because so often you see people get together and they're trying to decide the simplest thing and it takes forever to do it. You know, So they're arguing back and forth and talking back and forth and they finally, you know, James gets up and uh, Peter basically sets the tone. He says, this is a paraphrase, he says, hey, listen, I preached the gospel, Gentiles got saved. They received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. Uh, what are you guys talking about? Of course they're saved. They don't need anything else. And so then James gets up and he says, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so, if ever there was a time for, the, for somebody to get up and say, you know what, we need the richness of Jewish tradition along with Christianity. This would have been the time. But James gets up and speaking with wisdom and the anointing of the Holy Spirit after weighing out all this evidence, he says, here's the deal. Gentiles just need to be careful that they don't uh, stumble Jews with their freedom. They have total freedom from all of these things. There's no Sabbath requirement. There's no diet requirement. There's no days for them to keep. There's nothing like that that God has put on the, uh, on the Gentiles. He says, but because of love, tell them not to eat things that have been strangled or things with blood or these kinds of things that would offend their Jewish brethren. And that's it. That's it. That's all there was to it. And so now, centuries later, we sit here and we think, wow, I'm missing out on so much. No. A Jew like Paul thought, I've gained so much. 
I don't need these things, these rites and these rituals. So if we want to have a Passover Seder or see how Jews did things and, you know, those kinds of things, that's fine. But just be careful that you don't get drawn off, sucked into these arguments. And it's not just Judaism. There's a lot of this coming out of the emergent church and different churches about the rich tradition and history of the church. Usually that means the idolatry of the early church is what it actually means. You know, that, that they've discovered some idolatrous practice that the church used to do, a prayer labyrinth or some kind of crazy walk through hay bales or, you know, something that the church used to do. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, and then you do it, and you know what? You can be moved by things like that. It's very emotional. It's like, it's like you know, sometimes, do you ever watch a movie It has nothing to do with God? You know, a Pixar, any Pixar movie. tears your heart out you're like oh my you know i mean you can be moved emotionally by things very easily just because they're they happen in the church in the fellowship hall or at a meeting it doesn't mean they're from god any more than the movie up is from god you know it's just it's just emotional we're emotional beings and so the argument that wow i went to this thing and they had prayer rugs and and prayer labyrinths and all of this and i was moved by it in a way that i'm not moved when i come to normal church all right yes you are moved by it you know what you're going to be moved all the way by it back into idolatry because that's what those guys are talking about and so just be careful enjoy the freedom you have just don't stumble other people i mean you don't need diets and days, rites and rituals, dr- manuals on how to dress and all of that. All you need to do is love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, that's it. That's the bottom line. Amen?